Hello again. In uh, this, it will be another two-parter in this podcast. I'm going to be talking about the first real adventure I had that I organised on my own, and that was riding a motorbike around Australia back in uh, 1997, so quite a while ago now. And I guess just to make it interesting, I'd only passed my motorcycle test six months earlier, so although I'd really wanted to have a motorbike, and well, since the age I was 15, 16, since I, since I was at school, um, for reasons I won't go into, it never really happened, but I'd been um, thinking about moving to Australia for a while and then finally got my approval to go in 96. And at that point, I decided I didn't want to just move from the UK to Australia and switch essentially one view for another by going straight into a job. So I decided to take some time out and basically take the opportunity to uh, ride around Australia and see as much of the country as I could in uh, in a reasonable amount of time so that was the first thing so I moved to Brisbane initially when I went to Australia I got there very early in January in 97 and um, just uh, stayed with somebody I knew at the time and did a bit of research I finished up in northern Brisbane somewhere (laughs) I can't tell you where now because I I think it might have been Maruka but I'm not quite sure now but it was in northern Brisbane anyway and um talking to this guy about motorbikes and he definitely recommended something with a shaft drive and because of the distance I'd be covering which turned out to be just under 18,000 kilometers so that's just over 11,000 miles um, his point was that if I had a normal motorbike with a chain I'd be spending a lot of time retention in the train chain and doing a lot of uh, maintenance on the go so I guess that was tick number one, you know, the type of bike. Am I looking at a shaft or a chain drive? Um, Other things, what sort of fuel capacity? Because I was really against carrying uh, a jerry can with extra fuel. I wanted to avoid that because I decided not to camp. Um, Again, to keep my load down on the bike partially. And it seemed reasonable to, um, or at the time anyway, seemed reasonable to... Uh, just use motels and YMCA's and those kind of places. Anywhere where I could get a room to myself because if you've never ridden a bike, you or my feeling anyway is that you need to be more kind of aware than you do in a car. And I've done a lot of driving in cars. And to be honest, sometimes I've been pretty tired and I've been driving. Probably shouldn't have driven, but there you go. Um, but in a car, you do have protection, whereas in a motorbike, you don't. And you're very exposed. So if somebody else makes a mistake... There's not much other than your attention, if you like, and your reactions to um, protect you. So that was kind of one of the things I decided to um, tick off. So what else do I need to think about? So I wanted a bike with a reasonable fuel tank capacity and a reasonable range because, excuse me, in the city parts of Australia, it's fine. You know, there's fuel everywhere. But once you get into remote areas, you might be going more than 200 k's between fuel stops. So the bike has to have that kind of range and ideally some kind of reserve just in case something happens. So that was another factor. I was really looking at bikes that had a decent range on them. And one of the things I did in the early stages of the ride particularly, I mean, I logged my distances. I've got a whole spreadsheet here of um, each leg of the trip and what the distance was um but i I had a a notebook with me which is still around somewhere but i was noting down how much fuel i was using and 
as long as I kept myself to around 100Ks an hour when I was riding on the open stretches, just taking it steady, um, I knew I had a good range. I could easily do over 220Ks on a tank. So that was another factor, though, having that range and ideally a bit of a margin, safety margin. Um, the, the next thing, and there were a few, so this is slightly random, but I was also looking at which direction. So as I say, I started in Brisbane. And being January, this is the... Um, middle of summer really in Australia. In fact, it's summer holidays. So if you're not familiar with how Australia works, basically Australians go disappear from late mid to late December through to the end of January through to Australia Day because you've got Christmas, you've got New Year, and you've also got school holidays. It's you know everything happens at that time of year. Also looking at the northern part of the country where you're in a, essentially the tropics the seasons you've basically got two seasons you've got a wet season and a dry season and i wanted to avoid some of the summer rains that um, you get up in the north because you do get flooding and in fact when i got to sydney in um, february because i left brisbane at the very end on, on the 30th of january um I rode down to Sydney over the space of a couple of days and then spent a couple of weeks there. But I ended up spending an extra few days because we were having these really heavy um, rain storms that they had with hail and all the rest of it. And parts of Sydney were flooded. So that early part of uh, 97. And I just stayed another couple of days where I was staying until the worst of the rain had gone. And then I took off. But that was definitely a factor because up in the north, in the more remote areas, when I did eventually get up there, um, now, you've got a picture. These are roadhouses, which are like, um, what are they like? They're kind of service areas, but they're up on um, a little platform, so a wooden platform often with steps leading up to them. And they're in an area which is very open. You might have hills in the distance, but essentially it's all very flat, very dry, very desert-looking in, in terms of sort of dried mud, that kind of thing. And... Nothing really to be seen for quite a while. Now, I was showing pictures of these areas where they were in flood with water right up to the top of the steps, and I have no idea how many millions of gallons of water it would take to flood that kind of expanse to that level. But that would have been the, they would have been the kind of conditions I'd have been risking if I decided to um, head off from Brisbane in an anticlockwise direction. If you look at the, think of Australia on the face of a clock. Um, and I'm, if you know where Brisbane is, it's up over on the um, the right-hand side. So it's sort of on the east. It's roughly halfway up the coast. So it's just inside the Queensland border, um, not not very far. And that would have been where I was going. I would have been heading up into Northern Territory in that area. So I decided to head down south first and basically go in a clockwise direction. And so that 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 was essentially my next kind of critical decision point I guess in the planning stage which direction was I going to travel because that had all sorts of implications like um, obviously the weather I was likely to encounter and also how I could change the trip on the fly if things got if conditions got very bad as they did when I mentioned when I was in Sydney then I, I had the opportunity to change things so that was another factor um, other things, well, things like food and water, on the whole, I was pretty good when I was on the east and uh, the eastern half of the country before I got to the Nullarbor, in, in fact, before I got to Port Augusta in South Australia, because up to that point, 
to a degree, <laughs> you're reasonably well serviced by service stations and towns and places where you can stop and get something to eat or uh, get fuel and that kind of thing. But once you get past Port Augusta and you go further west, you're going across what they call a Nullarbor, which is um, an area of desert. And Nullarbor is, is essentially Latin, Latin for no trees, uh, Nullarbor. And that's that runs across the top of what's known as the Great Australian Bight. So again, if you look at the map of Australia, in the south coast, there's a big chunk taken out of the bottom, which is referred to as the Bight. And the Nullarbor essentially runs across that and connects the eastern half of the country to the west. Now that's pretty open. And um, I'll, I'll talk about that more in the next um, uh, podcast. So... That goes back to food, drink, water, supplies. So I made sure that I always carried a couple of litres of water with me just so that that was for mainly cooling down and drinking. And another factor, because even in the winter it can be quite warm in um, in Australia depending on where you are and what the weather's like, most of my rides I did in the first half of the day. So I would leave, uh, particularly um, when I got into the more countryside areas, I would leave a little bit after dawn, maybe an hour or so after dawn, and then try and be where I was going for that day by around midday. And a couple of reasons for that. One is when it comes to kangaroos and um, large animals like that that tend to move around. Uh, kangaroos tend to be most active at dawn and dusk. And kangaroos will just come straight across the road in front of a vehicle. Now, if you're in a truck, that can be a nuisance. And in fact, um, I did come across a truck um, up in, I think it was northern Western Australia, and it had hit a cow a few hours earlier. And the cow at that stage was lying on its side with the legs going straight out. The post-mortem gases had already inflated the, the carcass a little bit. But this truck was a petrol truck it had turned over and the whole area of the whole tarmac was just black where this petrol had spilled out and caught fire so that's something as big as a truck and I'm in a motorbike so I wanted to minimize the chances of me hitting something large and I did have a few occasions where um, <laughs> that, that was a, a real possibility but that was the, the main thing though to go after dust so I can only remember one occasion where I did leave pre uh, sorry, go after dawn. So I can remember one occasion where I did leave before dawn by about an hour. I was heading up to, um, I think I was leaving Alice Springs and it was just I had a really long drive. I knew it was going to be very hot later in the day. And what tends to happen on the motorbike, because I had a full face helmet on, and my brain would begin to cook inside the helmet if I didn't do something about it. So this guy in um, Brisbane who I was chatting to about the ride, he was really helpful. So one of his tips was to every now and again just stop, take water, take my helmet off, pour cold water on my head and then put the helmet back on again. And that was a really good way of keeping my head cool uh, on those occasions where I was either riding in the afternoon, which I did on a few um, occasions, or when I just started to overheat and I just needed to cool down. Um, people at the, st <laughs> I do remember doing that at the side of the road on one occasion and this, these people in a bus were driving past and they were looking at me like I was maybe crazy, but um, there was actually a sound reason for doing that. So that came back to what did I need to carry with me, which then went back back to, okay, what kind of luggage facilities did I need on my bike? Well, I had a bag that sat on my pillion seat. In fact, it only stayed on the pillion seat for the first, no, sorry, it actually stayed on the pillion seat for most of the ride. I bought an A-frame for it to go on the 
go behind the pillion um, seat so that I could mount it on the far back of the bike. So it was essentially overhanging the back of the bike. And I also bought a couple of soft pannier bags that sat either side of the saddle, so either side of the back wheel, basically. But the problem with the larger bag, when it was full, so I had clothes in there, I had my water, um, maps, those kind of things. Um, camera there, I had a small tripod with me because I had some camera gear with me, film, it was the days of film, and um, all that kind of stuff. But the problem was, what I found on the first day was, because I had a reasonable amount of weight in it, and it was behind the um the rear axle if you like the center of the rear wheel it meant that it was i had a large chunk of weight behind my center of gravity and what it did is as it sort of put more pressure down on the back of the bike which lifted my headlight a little bit which meant that as i was riding along my headlight beam was high so i didn't adjust it i just switched the bag around so the the um this bag was actually sat on the pillion seat right behind me it made it a little awkward to get onto the bike so I had to do this peculiar thing where I had to lift my um, right leg up in front of me and kind of, because I'm a little bit short, <laughs> I sort of had to lift it over the, the bike to get on. Um, but so that was another factor though. So I bought these pillion bags, uh, the, the pillion bags and the, the larger bag to go on the, the, the pillion seat. And so I had the three bags essentially for storage of pretty much everything. Um, I didn't want to be carrying a backpack, particularly as I've said, I didn't want to be carrying spare fuel if I didn't have to. I didn't want to be taking camping gear. And I think if I tried that, and I'm sure people have come up with better solutions, um, but I think I would have needed a little trailer or something. And I absolutely did not want a trailer on the uh, on the bike. So they were the main things. Now, what did I learn? So the, the bike that I chose in the end was a Yamaha um, 900 diversion. And so 900 cc's, it was... Um, a bikini fairing so it didn't have the full fairing but it had a top fairing around the handlebars with a full fairing around that headlight which mean, mean uh, means that the air was deflected up towards my face so the combination of the fairing and the full face helmet worked pretty well um the only downside to it was i had road tires on it and um i had to so i got through two sets of tires doing that that journey uh, because uh, motorbike tyres tend not to last as long as car tyres. That was my sort of previous reference. And, um, yeah, there's different compounds you can use as well. So the problem with the road bike was it was quite heavy, and on those tyres, I did find on a few occasions when I went slightly off-road, so if I went on an unmade road, it would be either gravel or um, sand. Definitely on gravel, that bike had a tendency to slide. And... On one occasion, I was over in Western Australia and I was about halfway up the um, West Coast, right on the coast, and I was on um, a little peninsula. I think it's the Denham Peninsula, but there's a thing called Stromatolite. So I actually did go all the way along the peninsula because there's a sealed road. So sealed is basically, it's got tarmac on. And I wanted to make a detour up to these things called Stromatolites. Now, Stromatolites are the, the oldest form of life that still exists on the earth. And what it is, that it's kind of like, um, they're a little bit like coral, but they live in um, very saline um, environments, so very salty environments. And I think there's only two places on earth that I know at the moment, or you know, when I researched at the time, where stromatolites still exist. And one of them is in some very shallow seawater 
um, on this in this particular part of Western Australia because because of the evaporation because it is fed by sea but it's, it gets quite warm as well a lot of the water tends to evaporate and the, and the salt stays in, in what's left of the water so the um, saline levels in that water are much much higher than we get elsewhere which allows these stromatolites to work uh, to, to continue to live so they're not particularly exciting to look at they're like these little colony things but they're, they're pretty much unique as I say I think there's only two sites and again uh, you know worldwide but I might be wrong on that but anyway trying to get along to those I did get there in the end in a car um, on another time but um, yeah I tried to go on the motorbike and um, after a couple of k's of basically riding at a walking pace with both of my legs um, out to the side to try and help my balance and the bike absolutely shaking itself it felt like to pieces um, and I'd only gone two k's and I thought no I've got you know I had a, another five or six to go whatever it was and I thought no this isn't going to work so an off-road bike would have been better for those kind of situations and also for some of the well, I remember going to a lookout that I thought would be really cool and um basically it was all off-road and it was it was sort of all very heavily rutted and all the rest of it and in the end I had to give up and actually I had the engine running and I was slipping the clutch but I was walking next to the bike because it was so hard to balance it I was really worried I'd drop the bike and then I'd have to unload everything to get it upright and it would all be hard work so those were really the main things that I thought about on the planning stage and initially I was doing a full day's riding so going from Brisbane to Sydney I would I did it in two days but after that I would actually do three days between major centers so that works out to about a thousand kilometers but that was the kind of interval I was doing so that's pretty much it I don't want to go on too much longer talking about this but just to give you the stats the final stats um so I've already told you the distances. So it was just under, it was, it was actually 17,794.5 kilometers, 11,057.5 miles. And the whole trip took me 19 weeks and four days. So I'll talk more about that in the next podcast. But um, from a very broad brush perspective, those were the kind of things I was thinking about when I was doing the planning for the trip. So I'll talk to you again in the next podcast when we actually get on the road and I'll start talking about some of the things that happened when I was on the road. So bye for now. Just before I go, I want to let you know that there's a couple of ways you can support me if you feel so inclined. Uh, with the podcast, Buzzsprout, which is the um, the platform I use for all of my podcasts, they have a subscription model. So if you feel that you would like to subscribe, a few dollars, a few euros, whatever, um, to the podcast, that would be much appreciated. The other option is my Patreon membership. So if you'd like to become a patron, and that starts at the price of a cup of coffee every month, you'll get access to exclusive material, behind-the-scenes material, photography tips, all this kind of stuff, depending on which tier you're at. So there is information available through my website and um, also on the, uh, uh, the written text to go with this podcast. So if you choose either one, thank you so much in advance. And whether or not you do, I hope you uh, continue to enjoy the podcast and let other people know about them. Thank you very much. Bye for now. 